We find ourselves in another courtroom drama this evening. This section of Paul's life is full of them. Each one has its own particularities and characteristics. In this section, a prominent feature is the attorney brought in by the prosecution to build a case against Paul. His name is Tartullus, and he's what we would call a ringer. He means business. Joe Jamail was perhaps the most successful trial lawyer in history. They called him the king of torts. Before his death back in 2015, I believe, Forbes magazine estimated his net worth to be $1.7 billion, winning hundreds of million-dollar-plus rulings for his clients. He won five verdicts of over $100 million each, and the crown jewel of his career was winning a $10.5 billion ruling against Texaco for Pennzoil. Though Joe was charitable in some ways, he donated hundreds of millions of dollars to education and medical research and performing arts. He also had quite a mean streak, if you knew him. Uh, salty language doesn't begin to describe the way he talked to people. And he once defeated a client so soundly that as they came to concede and, and to settle with him, he demanded the opposing attorney give him the suit he was wearing. He said to him, I've got your money, now I want your clothes. And he hung that suit on display in his office. So that's the kind of, <laughs> that's the kind of guy Joe was. What do you do when Joe Jamail comes through the door to accuse you? Well, Paul is facing a guy like that in Acts 24. And yet, in his opening statement, Paul will testify that he was cheerful to present his defense. He was in good spirits. He knew that characters like Tertullus or Joe Jamail may be flashy and well-paid and may even win a lot of temporary victories, but no matter how effective they may seem, they cannot compare to our advocate in heaven. And it is in the eternal courtroom where the real drama is being tried and where the case really matters. So we're going to begin in verse 1 and take a look at this scene. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. Paul appears alone in the scene, at least as far as Luke's telling goes. He had been whisked away last time, we saw, by hundreds of Roman soldiers after they heard about an assassination plot against him there in the city of Jerusalem. In contrast to Paul, the humble servant of God, the itinerant minister, these enemies of the gospel show up with pomp and authority and influence and swagger and supply, all sorts of things. The high priest himself of Israel makes the long trip along with an entourage of the nation's leadership and with this attorney suddenly in tow. We don't know a lot about him. He will be gone just as soon, as quickly as he appeared on the scene. But based off of his name, it's possible, maybe even probable, that he was in fact a Roman and not a Jew at all. We'll find he was a skilled orator and he understood the complexities of Roman law. And though he had been hired only a few days before, he does a remarkable job putting together a case against Paul. It's especially remarkable when we remember that there's no evidence for anything that they're accusing Paul of. They're just making this up as they go. Yet after hearing Tertullus speak, you'd have to assume that Paul was public enemy number one and that if you don't get rid of this guy, maybe the whole Roman Empire was doomed. We read in verse two, when Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him. 
and said, we enjoy great peace because of you and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere. Most excellent Felix with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not burden you any further, I request that you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. Man, like, (laughs) just, come on, man. Uh, Commentators point out that in this text, you know, it's probably Luke is shortening, you know, and is paraphrasing what he said, or, or at least not giving us the full account. It's unlikely that this whole trial lasted about three minutes, which you can read through this in about that long. But they point out in the text, Tortullus spends as much time flattering Felix as he does presenting a case against Paul. And it makes sense. Win over the judge, and you're much more likely to win the case. But man, is he going overboard. You look at all he's ascribing to Felix. He's acting like he's some sort of god among men there in in this Roman uh, region. He says, because of you, we have peace. And Felix, because of you, the whole nation is benefited in every way and everywhere. We should be worshiping you with thankfulness. In fact, when we read foresight there, Tertullus is actually using the word for providence. He says, by your providence, all of this is happening. Unfortunately, none of this is true. I mean, we know that none of this was true, but it was really, really not true. Felix is remembered by historians as a brutal and deeply corrupt politician. Robert Gerard writes this, few periods in Judean history were marred by more unrest and terrorism. The years of AD 52 to 59 when Felix was procurator were years of unparalleled government corruption. So Tertullus is really laying it on thick. He's not even trying to be subtle about this. Uh, And he's maybe laying it on too thick. Some scholars think that we see this quick shift in verse four where he says, you know, okay, you know, I don't want to burden you anymore. And so some scholars think that that even Felix got fed up and was like, come on, like that's enough. And so he said, okay, just give us a short hearing. And he had to pivot on his feet really quick there. but before we move on, a quick reminder to us. I mean, we see how these, this, this lawyer is talking about Felix. And yeah, it's true. Felix had a lot of power in that room, in this situation, on the human level, right? He's in charge of the region. He has the power of the Roman army, you know. Uh, he's, you know in, he's been given this, this, this awesome responsibility to keep the peace in Judea and all of that. But a good reminder for us as God's people, real peace, real reform, real providence comes from the Lord. It never comes from the world, never. It just doesn't. Right now, our culture is just absolutely obsessed with politics and administrations and figures in government. And the good news for us is that when you look in the Bible, whether you're talking about a political official who's born again and spirit-filled like Sergius Paulus, the governor of Cyprus that we read about many chapters ago, or if we're talking about a political figure like Felix, who was a monstrous killer. At one point, he bribed this faction to start a revolt against another faction. Then they all got you know, effectively arrested, and then he took all the plunder, and a bunch of people got crucified. He's that kind of guy. So whether you're talking about Felix or Sergius Paulus, which the difference couldn't be greater, the Lord is the one who is in charge. And no matter who is in uh, on the earthly throne or who, whoever's in the earthly judge's seat, 
It is the Lord who is uh, working out his will and his purposes for his people and for the world. No matter who's in charge, God is never hamstrung, right? It's not that, you know, okay, well, this election didn't go our way or this war didn't turn out the way that, you know, we were hoping or X, Y, or Z, and that the Lord is like, well, now I don't know what to do. I thought it was gonna be Sergius Paulus. It ended up being Felix. And so, uh uh-oh, we're all in trouble. That's not the case at all. The Lord is the one who is in charge and the Lord is over all of these things. And so our hope as people who live and move about in this world, our hope is never built upon a certain law or a certain administration or a certain system. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? He is the source of peace and transformation and his providence cannot fail. And so while the world is yanking out their hair, one half of you know, our country is yanking out their hair that this person won and this person lost, and then the other half of the country is pulling out their hair that, you know, that the other person won and the other person lost, right? Everybody's upset all the time, but we know that God's providence cannot fail and we know that Jesus Christ is the source of peace peace for his people, whether you're under Caesar Nero or whether you're under insert politician of your choice, if you could write him in on the ballot, right? Verse five says this, we have found this man, Paul, to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple. And so we apprehended him by examining him yourself you will be able to discern the truth about these charges that we are bringing against him. Warren Wearsby points out that they brought three charges against Paul. One was personal, one was political, one was theological. And all of them were, were crafted and, and delivered in such a way to pressure Felix into promptly executing Paul. Get, let's, we need to get rid of this guy. So, so for sure, we need to understand that uh, the, the Jewish leaders here were not just trying to sanction Paul or slap him on the wrist. They want him dead. And this is why they've gone to considerable expense to get this big deal attorney here to build this case. It's based off of nothing, but to build this case and, and pull out all the big guns of flattery and subterfuge and pressure and all of this stuff because they want Paul dead. Now, first, the personal charge. They said, this guy is like a deadly virus spreading throughout the entire empire. He causes trouble everywhere he goes. Now, it's interesting because you can go back through Paul's travels, even his own account of his travels, and you find that there was indeed trouble and rioting just about everywhere he went. In multiple instances, he would arrive in some city and then Wouldn't you know it? Violence would break out just about right after he got there. Now, we know the whole story. And Paul never set out to agitate anyone. His hope was revival in the hearts of one or of many. And in opposition to the gospel of grace, the enemies of God would then rally and riot and try to destroy and and try to put down his message. But I think this is important. Paul never went to a place with the goal of agitating anyone. He, he never went somewhere saying, I'm going to stir things up and, and really tell people like it is and, and, and rattle people's cage. 
Now, he would go and deliver a hard message of, of sin and judgment and repentance and salvation, right? But he didn't have this mentality of, I wanna go and kind of smack people around a little bit. And sometimes, you know, that, that is a, a mentality that can every now and then sort of creep into certain parts of the church where it's like, well, we need to, it, it, ends, up being, uh, it ends up being painted as we need to tell it like it is. And what that is code for is we wanna go and rattle people's cages. We wanna agitate people. We wanna shake people up. And that's not really the mentality that Jesus had or that the apostles had. Now listen, even though we are not meant to agitate in that sense, it's clear and it's, it's explained in the scripture that the gospel will be offensive to people. And to some, our message of salvation by faith through grace in Jesus Christ is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that message will be the savor of death to some people. And that causes trouble, right? As, as the enemy of God uh, comes against us and as the world seeks to put down the church, history bears this out, the scriptures tell us about it. So it's clear that the gospel does cause an offense, right? But our mentality is always supposed to be rooted in love and compassion, right? So God doesn't really want to send us out to be combative when we talk to people. He sends us out to be compassionate when we talk to people. The, and we talked about this a, a number of studies ago where you're part of the Lord's army, right? I love that song you learn when you're in Sunday school. I'm in the Lord's army, right? But as a member of the Lord's army, I'm not a door gunner, I'm a rescue diver. We're sent into the darkness of this world to rescue those who are trapped behind enemy lines, trapped in their sin, held captive by the devil. We're not sent to shoot those people up and to, and to wreck them or to hurt them or anything like that. We're sent to rescue them. Now, if they don't want to be rescued or if they fight against us, that is gonna happen. And, and the Bible explains that. Hey, you should be ready for the world to hate you. You should be ready for the world to come against you. They hated me, they're gonna hate you. But it's a mentality thing. And so we wanna be rooted in love and compassion. If our mindset is, I wanna go wreck some opponent of God, that's just, that's just not the way the Lord carried himself. It's not the way the disciples carried themselves. We're not called to behave like disturbers of the peace. We're called to be peacemakers. And the environment we're sent into is hostile and sometimes will grow increasingly hostile. So I think you guys can tell the difference between those mentalities. Now, Tertullus made a political charge against Paul as well. He called him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, the term that he used here was uh, one that would have set off alarms in Felix's mind. It was full of connotations. It was a word they used in Greek. Uh, they would use it of a person who stood before soldiers who were about to fight. And he meant to paint Paul as a revolutionary who was threatening Rome, who wanted to come against uh, the emperor and come against Roman rule. This argument perhaps I fell a bit flat since this so-called ringleader stood alone in the courtroom that day. No soldiers there to support him, no mob protesting outside. By all accounts, uh, we don't know, but if we are just reading this narrative and we've seen scenes similar to this, right? Peter's in jail, what's the church doing? We gotta rally, we have to have this prayer meeting. Paul's in jail and then in jail again and, there's, and, and, and it's as if there are no Christians in Jerusalem. 
Now, maybe they were having a prayer meeting. I think probably his friends were, but the way that it's being told to us, we see him standing alone. Of course, we know he wasn't alone. The Lord is with him. The Holy Spirit was with him. But this great ringleader, this great champion of this revolutionary force, where are his soldiers? Where are the, where are the revolutionaries that he's leading you know, up Hamburger Hill? They just don't exist. Now, anyone who listened to Paul would know that he didn't call for political uprising. His message was so much higher than that. And what a good thing that Paul wasn't constantly political in his message, because not only would that distract people from the much more important issue, which is the salvation of their souls, it may have led to his ruin in this trial. If they could produce, oh yeah, in this city, he talked about how we need to kill the emperor. In this city, he talked about how we need to overthrow Rome. And in this city, we need to do this and need to do that. But he didn't do that. No, Paul didn't lower himself to the level of earthly political revolution. Instead, like his Lord, his life was dedicated to personal transformation, right? The transformation of the gospel, of a life revolutionized by God, not the turning over of a human system. And what's been proven again and again is that personal transformation is the thing that leads to real and lasting social change. So we all want a better world in that general sense. We want a society with less crime. We want a society with um, greater love and equality and all of these things. We want positive human interactions and positive social change. And the way to do that has been shown again and again is for people, individuals, to be transformed by the power of God. Because if you get a person and they go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, if you set them free from their sin, if you set them free from the captivity of the devil and instead bring them into the family of God, well, then everything changes. And then you don't have to tell that person, don't murder, don't steal, don't cheat, don't rob, don't do these things, because the Holy Spirit has transformed them from the inside out, and they are now operating according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the goal, and that is our focus. And if we want a better world, we need more Christians, right? If we want better leaders, we need leaders who are actually motivated by the love of God. We need people who will actually say, I, you know, I like the Bible, I read it, and I do it, right? That's what we need. There's no, you know, there's no law that can force a bad person to do a good thing. We can incentivize them to do good, or we can make it uncomfortable for them to do bad. But if we actually want people to turn their lives around, turn their communities around, turn a nation around. It is righteousness that exalts a nation. And it is the power of Jesus Christ that transforms a life and enables people to actually make an about face and instead of heading towards ruin, instead go towards redemption in Christ. Now, third, Tertullus made a theological accusation. Paul, he said, had tried to defile the temple. There's absolutely no evidence for this, but the prosecution was just trying to heap as much kindling on the fire as they could. Felix, it's recorded, had frequently crucified uprisers in his jurisdiction. And so their whole point was, hey, if you don't get rid of this guy quick, a revolt is gonna break out on your watch. Blood is gonna flow in the streets and Rome doesn't like that. Verse nine, the Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. 
Reading Acts and the Gospels, we quickly learn not to expect good behavior from the Jewish ruling class. But really, what a sad thing to read here as we just look at the hypocrisy and the corruption of this whole scene. Remember, these elders, these leaders, these you know, powerful figures were supposed to be the people who were closest to God in the nation. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't supposed to just be politicians. They were supposed to be the godliest people over the nation of Israel, the ones most acquainted with scripture, the ones who claimed to have dedicated their lives to honoring Yahweh. But what do we see here? In order to protect their personal status, their traditions and their bigotry, they took money donated to God and paid this greasy lying attorney to come in and manufacture a case against a man who was simply teaching people that the Messiah had come and was offering them forgiveness of sins and entrance into heaven. Paul wasn't teaching that the temple should be destroyed. Paul wasn't teaching that every Jew should abandon every uh, part of their Jewish culture. He was teaching that, yes, Gentiles, can get saved and know they don't have to become Jews first, uh, but it was bigotry and tradition and jealousy and a threat to the status quo that caused these guys to just go all out carnal here, all out hypocrisy, all out corruption. They knew that these things weren't true that were being said about Paul, but they had decided to go all in on worldly methods to accomplish what they thought was best for themselves. It's becoming more and more common, unfortunately, for Christians to be suing each other in open court in blatant defiance of God's word. There are prominent cases all the time and more that we hear about through the grapevine. Churches suing each other, church members suing each other, usually for money or property or some other worldly thing. It is an affront to the commands of God and his callings on us as individuals and as churches. But even beyond that direct comparison, the terrible example of these Jewish leaders in verse nine reminds us of the folly of using worldly methods to try to accomplish spiritual goals. Listen, they thought in some sad, twisted way, they thought they were honoring God. I mean, the Sadducees set a very low bar. We get that, right? But on some level, they thought they were honoring God, or at least some of these guys actually thought that they were doing God a favor by putting down these Christians, putting down a preacher like Paul. We know that's true because Paul himself said, yeah, I thought that the best way for me to worship God and honor God was to go out and kill people. And it's crazy, but that's what was happening. And so they weren't, of course, honoring God, but part of the reason why they had gotten so far off track, how they had slipped so far into hypocrisy and corruption was because they were willing to take the world's methods and the world's way of doing things and try to apply it to their spiritual lives and their spiritual efforts. Hey, how do we win this case? What would Gamaliel have said? He said many chapters ago, he, what did he say? He was a guy who wanted to honor God. Who knows, maybe he became a Christian one day. But he, we, it's clear that he, in his heart, really wanted to honor God. And so he said in that other trial scene, he said, don't fight against God. If this is of God, we can't fight against it. We can't overcome it. If it's not against God, then it's gonna go away. And so he trusted the Lord. And on some level, he was saying, we should use spiritual means to solve this spiritual issue. And now we fast forward the 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 influence of Gamaliel's gone. 
and you got guys who, number one, were complicit in a conspiracy to commit murder, just out and out murder with the assassination attempt, the last passage. And now you have these guys that are actively involving themselves in, in lies. They know it's not true. They know they're making these accusations up. They know Paul hasn't done any of these things that he's being accused of, but they are willing to use these worldly methods in order to get to an end that they are hoping for. They were using flattery, flattery and pressure and manipulation to try to get what they wanted. If we find ourselves, for example, buttering people up so that we can get them to do something for us, that's Tertullus. That's not good. Uh, that's not how we are supposed to behave, right? The Bible says things like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We're supposed to speak openly with one another and honestly, we're not supposed to be deceiving one another. Instead, we're supposed to speak frankly and clearly and honestly speaking the truth in love. If we find ourselves doing things that are downright unchristlike in an effort to hang on to our wealth or our position or our security, that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. These worldly levers ruin our relationship with God and they knock us onto this slippery slope into the kind of hypocrisy and corruption that we see demonstrated here. The Sadducees, they got their whole other thing going on, but as we've talked about before, the Pharisees, hundreds and thousands of years ago before the gospels, you know, in that time between the Testaments, we would have been Pharisees. They were people who were like, hey, we need to honor God. We need to do what he says. We need to listen to his word. We need to take it seriously. We would have been Pharisees because they were the ones who said, we'll do whatever we have to do to follow God and honor his word, right? Then you fast forward and you get to the gospels and they murder the Messiah. They're killing the guy who they've been waiting their whole lives to see. How's that even possible? It's because they were making these steps into worldliness and into carnality, and they were looking at the temporal and saying, how do I hold on to this temporal thing that is important to me? And more and more, their hearts hardened, and they made these slides into corruption. So we don't want to be like that. These worldly levers are going to ruin our relationship with God, so we should avoid them. And that's exactly what Paul does in his defense. Verse 10, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. On very first glance, it might look like Paul is trying to compliment Felix too, but he's just not. That's not what's happening. Uh, unlike what Tertullus was saying, what Paul said here is true. And one of the commentators points out, it's really the only true nice thing he could say. Hey, you've been here for a few years. Anyway, I'd like to talk about my defense now. It was the thumper. It was the thumper opening. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. So he's doing the best he can to say something tactful to this awful man. Uh, and he's exampling for us, though, this is, this is good, because we are commanded to behave in a certain way in situations like this, and Paul gives us a very good example of it. So here's the command we receive in the New Testament as Christians, 1 Peter 3.15. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear, make a note of that. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. So that is a command, not just for apostles, that's a command for us, right? That is an operating principle that we are supposed to walk through life with. 
And now Paul gives us a real life exampling of that. He demonstrates that respectfulness, that gentleness, he's patient, he's faithful as he stands before Felix. We, we are always to be ready to give a defense. Now, hearing that, I often think, or I often have the connotation in my mind of, of a courtroom and of persecution. And if somebody says, are you a Christian? If you are, I'm gonna kill you. Okay, I gotta be ready for that. But even when we're living in a land of plenty and blessing and freedom like we do today, we wanna still keep ourselves ready to explain our hope. And if we're ready, it really doesn't matter if we're on trial or just in conversation with a loved one. Our conduct can be the same. And in either situation, we can be full of good cheer like Paul was because we know that the Lord is with us and he has filled our lives with hope. So here's what Paul testified starting in verse 11. You can verify for yourself that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to, Jeru to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges they are now making against me. So first of all, instead of flattery, he brings facts. Here's what happened. You can follow up. You can see all these things are true. Paul didn't live a secret life. He was an open book. His pages were full of godliness. His goal wasn't to get a crowd around himself. It wasn't to agitate people. His goal well, let's see, this is what his goal was. This is what he was about. Verse 14, I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and the written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people, while I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd, without any uproar. It is they who ought to be here to bring you charges if they have anything against me or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one statement, I shouted while standing among them, today I'm on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. His defense centered around the truth of the resurrection that there is a life after this one. He not only proclaims it as a great hope for himself, but he also uses it evangelistically there. He points out that, hey, the unrighteous, you're gonna rise too. You may not be part of my sect, part of the way, but you're gonna rise one day too. And in the end, you're going to face judgment. Now, since the resurrection was the motivating factor in his life, his life was then characterized by certain things. The resurrection was the motivator and the focal point of his life, and he always kept himself ready to explain the hope of the resurrection. And because of that, his life was characterized by certain things. I see six in these verses. I worship, I hope, I strive, I came, I stood, I shouted. He begins in verse 14 saying, I worship God according to the way. And so our first goal is worship. We wanna have you know, vision for ministry and goals for serving and plans and that sort of thing. But our primary objective as Christians is to worship God because as we draw near to him, then he is able to more and more fill us with himself, more and more able to conform us into his image and then give us his leading 
for those good works he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. I think we just always need the reminder that God has a plan for my life, not just generically, but he says, hey, I want you to discover the works that I have prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So it's okay for us as individuals to have hopes and dreams and goals and ideas, but the Lord should be the decider because a lot of times our ideas are not very good compared to the Lord's ideas, right? Not everyone, I'm gonna say this really respectfully as much as I can. Not everyone can plant a church in Orange County. I just wanna put that out there, right? Every time you hear this new church plant, Orange County, I'll go out on a limb and say, I don't think Orange County needs another church for about 100 years at this rate, right? No one ever says, you know what? I have a real burden to plant a church in Uzbekistan, right? I mean, there are people who are doing that, but we just don't, it's just not as flashy. It's just not as appealing. Now the Lord says, okay, each and every Christian represented here, he has a specific set of good works he wants you to walk in. It's as if the, the Lord took the map of the universe or the map of time and space and carved out a particular path that he wants you to walk in. And sometimes that path is gonna overlap with others. And sometimes it's gonna take weird turns and go this way or that way, but he knows the way and he wants you to go that way. Because when we go our own way, we don't make the kinds of choices that God sends his people on. For example, Philip, right? He's involved in revival in Samaria. This incredible thing is happening. And like all these people are getting saved and God says, why don't you just leave and go sit in the desert by yourself? We would never goal that for ourselves. We would never plan that for ourselves. That would not be on the agenda in the meeting. But thank God that, that Philip was willing to say, I'll let the Lord decide what I should do because he meets the Ethiopian eunuch and the Ethiopian eunuch brings the gospel back to an entire nation and revival breaks out there. And so we want to be worshiping God so that he can prepare us and lead us. Verse 15, Paul said, I have a hope that there will be a resurrection. It can only benefit us to fill our thoughts with our future hope. One day all will be made right, all will be made well, we will be completed. Any present troubles we face are small and momentary when compared with the eternal weight of glory. In verse 16, Paul said, I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. The Christian life is a life of selflessness and harmony. We don't accomplish it perfectly, nor are we responsible for how others react to us, but our part is to carry out our duty as much as we can to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all our mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the deal. To strive indicates effort and exercise. One dictionary describes it this way, to work up raw material with skill. We are to be about the business of Christian living. In verse 17, Paul said, I came to bring charitable gifts. Far from being a troublemaker, Paul was one who brought help and assistance to those in need. He brought this gift to people he had never met, and he did so at a considerable expense and danger to himself. While the Jews were taking holy contributions to the temple and paying some slick attorney to lie in a courtroom, Paul was making tents all night long to pay his own way to bring relief to people suffering in Jerusalem. In verse 20, Paul said, I stood before the Sanhedrin. Paul made a stand for his savior. His job was to testify and he took those opportunities when they came his way. He upheld the truth of the gospel and didn't buckle or shrink when the pressure was on. In verse 21, Paul said, I shouted. Even though few were listening at the time, he kept proclaiming the resurrection. He didn't give up, he didn't change the message. 
He kept proclaiming salvation through Jesus Christ, the truth that God is alive and that he's coming back again, that God is willing to save anyone, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, that God loves them all and wants to give them life more abundantly, everlasting life through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. As Paul dismantled the Jews' case against him piece by piece, he also revealed what the Christian life is full of. It's a living faith that operates in all sorts of wonderful ways in any sort of climate, in any sort of situation. And here was the result of his defense, verse 22. Since Felix was well informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I'll decide your case. He ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard though he could still have some freedom and that he should not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. It's clear that Felix didn't actually believe that Paul was any kind of revolutionary or any kind of danger. We find out later he was hoping someone would just pay him a bribe. <clears throat> He's just standing there. Man, Paul, you've got like seasonal allergies, right? No, no. That's what this means. It means I want money, right? I thought this was funny. Had the Jews realized that all Felix really wanted was a bribe, which is what we're told in a few verses, but instead of paying Tertullus, they could have just slipped Felix 50 bucks and had Paul dispatched right then, right? Instead, they go to all this trouble and make fools of themselves. But the Lord was providentially protecting his son, his servant. And we'll see more about the games Felix was playing next time, Lord willing. But we're told he was well-informed about the way which means he knew what Christianity was about. Thank goodness Paul filled his days with real Christianity so that Felix could look at him and say, well, yeah, you are a Christian. You actually are a Christian. You're not pretending. You're not claiming the name and then secretly being a revolutionary over here. You're a real Christian. I'm well informed about what it means to be a member of the way, and that's you. Paul was really like Jesus. The Jews couldn't say that about their God, but Paul could, and it showed and so he was ready to give this defense because his life was lived in ongoing preparation. It was a life overflowing with godliness and truth and love for others. And so it was obvious when Felix looked at Paul what a good life he lived because he belonged to Christ. And that's what we get too, right? You can put yourself in this place as the Spirit wants to work through you to proclaim the incredible news of the resurrection to the world around you. Along the way, trouble is sure to find us. It's been promised. So let's not make trouble for ourselves or for others. Instead, let's glorify God as we worship and hope and strive to keep a clear conscience and stand and proclaim to the world around us that Jesus is alive and he is coming. And because he lives, we are gonna live forever and ever. Amen?